This yes. is hell. Okie doke. The United States has a Nazi problem. And it's not just the good old U.S. of A. Hell, what we call Western civilization. The whole thing has a problem with simmering, lurking fascism, always in the offing, ready to explode onto the scene in a burst of violence. So what gives? Why can we seemingly never get rid of fascism, even after a global war against the reactionary menace? Our guest today argues that our law, European law, is a system that only recognizes one form of subject, the individual, projected at the macro level into some kind of collective super-subject, whether sovereign state, Nazi Reich, or hypothetical cyber-fascist Sovcorp, as in sovereign corporation. The law endows that subject with only one fundamental right, the liberty to regard everything that is not a subject, everything that is not human, an ever-shifting category in any case as an object, or rather as an unlimited reservoir of objects, which may be freely appropriated, transformed, accumulated, exchanged, consumed, and discarded without any restrictions whatsoever, whatsoever other than the duty to respect the right of fellow subjects to do the same. And when you're guided by a rule of law that says you are an individual with no responsibility to your fellow citizens other than to demand and accumulate stuff, the only true freedom you have is to acquire. And that's the kind of law that can get you into problems like, you know, colonialism, slavery, genocide. In other words, there's a slippery slope of fascistic exploitation ever-present that has been baked into the United States from its very founding, we'll try to have a better understanding of the crowd that occupied the U.S. Capitol two weeks ago and their belief that they were acting lawfully in protecting democracy when we speak in a few with legal scholar Rose Parfit, who wrote the article Mob Constitutionalism, The Riot in the Rights, which was posted at the Critical Legal Thinking website. Rose is a senior lecturer at Kent Law School. She's the author of The Process of International Legal Reproduction, Inequality, Historiography, Resistance, among other works on the relationship between international law and fascism and the far right. Follow Rose on Twitter at Rose underscore Parfit with two T's and then underscore again. Rose underscore Parfit. Find out more about Rose's work at Fascism and the international.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. If it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you, sir? I'm good. Hey, how did uh, Adolf Hitler tie his boots? Oh, good Lord. I don't know. How did Adolf Hitler tie his boots? With lots of little Nazis. Oh, my God. Did you write that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank God. Or did you write it and now you're disavowing it? <laughs> Richard, two weeks ago today, immediately after the show, we were out in the parking lot talking, and I was telling you how I was looking forward to going home to watch... What promised to be a very entertaining day of news with President Trump holding a rally down the street from the U.S. Capitol as lawmakers were counting electoral college votes and likely certifying Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. We then saw what America really looks like when a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. So I'm looking forward to what America will look like today at the inauguration inside a makeshift, makeshift fortress surrounded by tens of thousands of National Guard members who really feel threatened by the vast majority of Republicans who will not think Joe Biden is a legitimate president, just like Republicans did not think Barack Obama was a legitimate president, as he was believed to not be a U.S. citizen. Republicans, the party that does not believe in the legitimacy of the presidency when it is in their opponent's hands, who are then offended when you dare, dare question the legitimacy of their presidential choice. But for far more important than that, Richard, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what has the CIA been up to? <laughs> what and has the answer is no good. <laughs> what has the CIA been up to this whole time during the pandemic? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or at alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, during this week's Moment of Truth, 
Well, Jeff's waiting to see what happens during the inauguration. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question. Mel, again, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show or podcast or wherever the hell this thing is right now. Prove me wrong. This is hell. We told you throughout last year, if by some long shot, President Trump actually lost the election, whether it was by 1 million or 10 million votes, Trump would dispute the election and the armed militias that were appearing around the United States over the summer, especially inside state legislatures in attempts to intimidate elected officials into opposing pandemic lockdown restrictions, would be back with a vengeance, and the next time they would be violent. Every sign pointed to it. Those who were surprised were either not paying attention or were downplaying the significance of those actions over the summer, believing the armed mobs looking everywhere for members of a fictitious Antifa army were harmless posers that were all bark and no bite. But this was what happened with the U.S. Capitol was all very easily predictable. And Anyone who did not see this coming yet claims the people who stormed the Capitol are living in their own reality have yet to come to grips with their own reality. If you want to hear us recall how we warned you step by step, month by month, throughout 2020, listen to our Friday, January 8th Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Who knows? Maybe that's why this is God's favorite radio show. Not that I would dare guess why it is God's favorite radio show, because that would be blasphemy. But I'd guess the reason this is God's favorite radio show is because of you, the listening audience, your support for the show, your guest suggestions, topic ideas, and thoughts that you share with us each and every week. This week, we got another email from a listener asking us to have a particular politician on the show, despite the fact that we have a rule that is more a guideline of not having anyone on the show from politics or business as they are the only ones given access to the establishment media. And this is not the media. This is hell. So Chris writes us, Hey Chuck, as a fellow Chicagoan, I've regularly followed This Is Hell for years. I'm also working with the campaign to stop the right-wing recall of Seattle City Council Member Shama Sawant. Shama has been a socialist city council member in Seattle for seven years through three elections by building movements. Her council office has won crucial victories like the first major city $15 an hour minimum wage in the country, as well as a historic Amazon tax last summer. Because Shama has been effective and our movement has been fearless, we have attracted the anger of big business and the elite, and we are now facing a right-wing corporate-backed racist recall campaign to remove her from office. Most of the accusations from backers of the recall campaign center around Shama's unapologetic participation in Black Lives Matter organizing and protests this past summer. The corporate political establishment has found an opening to attack the BLM movement and are going all out to crack down on protesting itself. The Washington State Supreme Court is set to rule soon on the legality of the recall. Would you be willing to cover our fight against the recall on your show? Following recent events in D.C., it's another example of how far the right wing will go to undermine democratic rights. Sincerely, Chris from the Shama Solidarity campaign media team. And we got a similar email, a very similar email from Teresa at Chicago Socialist Alternative. So we asked you again a couple weeks ago, and we got that email from Teresa, should we have politicians on the show? And we keep getting the same response. For example, this is from Stephen, who writes, in response to your question on whether This Is Hell should have politicians on the show, no politicians in all caps should be guests on the show. Regardless of party affiliation, there are too many other voices that need to be heard. So let me pose a different question to you. Adam also wrote that we should not have politicians on the show, but he suggested that we do talk to people representing alternative parties, like the Democratic Socialists of America, the Working Families Party, or the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Your assignment for today is tell us if we should feature interviews with organizers of alternative political parties. We get it. You do not want politicians on the show, but what about those who can tell us about burgeoning 
alternative party movements. Tell us what you think and email us at chuckatthisishell.com. Message us via Facebook or tweet at us at This Is Hell Radio. And we will likely re- read your replies on air. Martin sent some guest suggestions. Martin writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, I really hope you bring on the authors of the following books because the topics they discuss seem incredibly interesting to me from a historical and or sociological perspective. The books I suggest are Dividing Paradise, Rural Inequality and the Diminishing American Dream by Jennifer Sherman, which comes out in April. How the Streets Were Made, How this um, Housing Segregation and Black Life in America by Yelena Bailey, which came out last month. Trouble of the World, Slavering an Empire in the Age of Capital by Zach Sell, which is being published this month. And another book that comes out in April, West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire by Kevin Waite. Martin writes also, as someone diagnosed with OCD and generalized anxiety, I'm curious about Psychiatry and Its Discontents by Andrew Skull, which is not out until June. Looking forward to more hell in 2021. Martin in Chicago. Again, if you have any guest suggestions or topic ideas, we will share them on air. If we have your suggested guest on the show or topic, we'll send you a small token of our appreciation. Coming up on This Is Hell, we're discussing what happened two weeks ago at the U.S. Capitol siege and the people who made it happen. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. We are repeatedly being told ad nauseum that what happened two weeks ago today is not America. That this is not who we are. There's a real problem with that analysis, as what happened at the Capitol is exactly who we are and have been since the nation's founding. Here to help us have a better understanding of the thinking behind the U.S. Capitol siege and the poor analysis that followed, legal scholar Rose Parfit wrote the article, Mob Constitutionalism, The Riot in the Rights, which was posted at the Critical Legal Thinking website. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rose. Hi, thanks for having me on. Rose is a senior lecturer at Kent Law School. She is the author of The Process of International Legal Reproduction, Inequality, Historiography, and Resistance, which was published in 2019, among other works on the relationship between international law and fascism and the far right. You can follow Rose on Twitter, at Rose underscore Parfit underscore, and you can find out about Rose's work, more about her work, at fascism and the international.com. You write the Trump presidency has been a rocky road for pretty much everyone to the left of Trump himself. Nonetheless, the lethal effects of the president's supporters at his command to storm the Capitol and overturn 2020's supposedly fraudulent result by force seems to have been the final straw. You describe this as an attempt to overturn an election. Many have described what happened as an attempt at a quote-unquote coup. A coup is defined in a dictionary as a sudden, violent, and illegal seizure of power from a government. I understand that it has larger political definition than that, but that's how it's defined in a dictionary. Others have bristled at the use of the word coup, arguing that a coup includes then necessarily you have to take have a military takeover of all the mechanisms of power, including the roads, the media, the airports, and so on. So is the debate over whether what happened on January 6th should, should be considered a coup, is that a relevant debate or is it simply a distraction? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I, th- I didn't call it a coup or maybe I did. I don't think I did. Mainly because no, you, you, seemed- you didn't. That's why I was bringing it up because yeah, I think well, that, yeah, it's a lot of good thinking there. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it was basically because it just seemed too haphazard to be a, a coup, right? Like it was, I mean, I know it was planned and there's, there's more and more evidence coming out that, of how long it was planned and how obviously it was planned and how openly. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that there didn't seem to be much of a plan beyond actually breaking in. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, um, Morales described it as an auto coup, which I thought was quite nice. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to be quite the point. To me, why do you why do you like the term autoku? Well, because because Trump was 
or he was still in power at the time. So he was trying to, in effect, like uh, um, enact a coup against himself in some kind of way. I mean, the whole scene, the whole thing seemed like to be extremely muddled. Although it is partly the case that when I wrote the um, when I wrote the post, uh, not so many details had come out at that time about exactly how violent it was. In fact, I had to change it before I submitted it because at the very beginning it seemed like you know like relatively sort of peaceful but then gradually 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 more and more of the violence came out so yeah but exactly as you said there doesn't seem that the military were involved there doesn't seem to have been that kind of like covert plan you write that many of the trump machine's most loyal enthusiasts have now broken ranks as for the skeptics both in the u.s and internationally this attempted takeover which left dozens injured and several people dead has been met with a torrent of condemnation laced every so often with a splash of schadenfreude in the uk for example boris johnson condemned this as a disgraceful episode in the history of a country that stands for democracy around the world what impact does the attack on the u.s capitol have on the concept of and faith in representative democracy internationally what might this mean for movements overseas that are currently trying to attain some level of democracy well oddly enough I think, yeah, what 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 seems to have happened um, to me anyway is that this has been seized on as an opportunity to essentially uh, re-legitimate all of the uh, institutions of the status quo that were, you know, supported by Republicans and Democrats alike, you know, for years and years and years. And that's what the invocation of fascism always does. And it's invoked all the time. I mean, particularly since 2016. Uh, and not just in relation to the states, but also Brazil and India and the UK and and many, many, many authoritarian governments all over the place. And there's this, this huge kind of cottage industry in trying to work out, you know, is Trump a fascist, is Bolsonaro a fascist, and so on, uh, engaged in by everyone. Um, but, but what that always does, by positioning the whole thing as kind of the opposite of law and order and describing it all as lawless and rioting and so on, it, 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 it repositions this kind of uh, a sense of um, representative democracy and the rule of law and capitalism as, you know, the savior from anarchy and fascism and violence and everything like that. So, yes, I think it's, it's, it's a classic example of kind of... Uh, yeah, everybody's seizing on it. People, the part, part of the reason why I chose that list of people, including Boris Johnson and Modi and everybody, is that they're not exactly the most democratic leaders that we have in the world, right? They're not exactly the most centrist or left-wing uh, on the country. But, you know, everybody, everybody on the spectrum, basically, is getting a chance to establish themselves and re-narrate themselves as, you know, uh, as the as, the, as the, the stalwarts, basically, of democracy and freedom. And I want to specifically get into uh, your, your mentioning of India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi in a second. But if the conversation should not be about whether Bolsonaro is a fascist or whether Trump is a fascist, how can that conversation be more constructive than just focusing on whether they uh, portray fascist tendencies? Well, the 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 point. Well, what what portraying them as fascism as fascist or portraying this situation as a, a kind of manifestation of fascism does is to try and position uh, the rule of law in particular and democracy and freedom and so on as the opposite. But actually, the point is that there are loads of continuities between the two, and that's like loads of my work has been about that, and not just me trying to extract this point come what may, but there's just so much evidence out there um, as to the lawfulness, as it were, of fascism, right? Fascism was full of law in all its manifestations. Um, so to try and position it as the opposite of of, um, of law and democracy is just doesn't work at all, including human rights. So the point is to try and, rather than kind of other them as the bad guys, the point is to, to think, wh- where do they come from? And what is it about the, the present order that continually reproduces this kind of violent, exclusivist, racist narrative. And you write that, as I was saying, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi described himself as deeply distressed by the rioting and violence in Washington, D.C., and warned that the d- democratic process cannot be allowed to be subverted through unlawful protests. Hmm. 
And as we were interviewing Indian farmer activist Avik Saha live from New Delhi last week, the protests that originally attracted millions to the streets of India back in November continue to lock down New Delhi. Those protests are over agricultural reforms that, among other criticisms, Indian farmers say were implemented outside of the normal processes of India's democracy and are motivated by cronyism. And Modi has seen these protests in his own country as unlawful protests. To what extent are leaders in other countries exploiting the U.S. capital siege for some political gain domestically within their own country? How how exploitable is what happened at the U.S. capital for those who are criticized for not upholding democracy? Well, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, I think very because it, it, it knocks America off the, or the United States off this pinnacle that, you know, the current moral high, high ground has been lost. And the, the very, the, exactly the same thing happened with the war on terror, right? The idea of the war on terror was so useful to everybody because it, it enabled uh, any, any, um, uh, any kind of attempt, especially uh, one that resorted to violence in some way, to challenge the state or to challenge the status quo in some way to be positioned as terrorist, right? So it's like the inversion of that. Um, uh, and in the context of the war on terror, that in particular made it really impossible for self-determination struggles in places like uh, Western Sahara and Palestine in particular. You know, that just, it, it was a, a, like a godsend to, to the states, Morocco and Israel in that context, trying to suppress them. So it's it's exactly the same thing, but the opposite way around, I would say. And you also quote uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, characterizing the break-in at the U.S. Capitol as not American. In your opinion, I know this is a big open-ended question, how American are these protests? Well, they see, I mean, you know, I should be asking you that question, but they seem to me from the outside to be really American, you know, really. Um, and it. I mean, not least because um, of the, the the history of the United States, not just in terms of slavery, which is really important, but also uh, in conjunction with settler colonialism, right? That whole, like th- this whole positioning of um, liberty, which is important to all liberal democracies, definitely. There's no question about that. And to all capitalist systems, the whole thing is is oriented around liberty. But in the United States, somehow or other, that that narrative of the frontier, I suppose, and I don't know, you, you tell me whether this is right, but it seems to me that that narrative is extremely, extremely strong. And, um, you know, this was kind of inevitable at some point, I suppose. But um, nonetheless, that doesn't make it any more kind of sort of like confronting to watch it play out in real life. Um, but it's also interesting that Macron jumps on the bandwagon of this whole thing about whether something is or isn't American, because Americanness, being un-American is associated with also with being socialist, right? Ever since um, McCarthy and all that. You know, when it comes to, you mentioned slavery, I, I saw something last night. Uh, every, I watch Fox News every so often because I want to know what the other, what other people are thinking. And I can't take it for very long. It usually lasts somewhere less than 30 seconds. Yesterday, I turned on Tucker Carlson for just a brief moment. And he said that he had proof, proof that CNN and liberals were the real racists. And then he showed a clip of a black congressman who was saying that whenever there are advances in civil rights, immediately following those advances in civil rights, there's blowback by there's blowback against those rights. At no point did he say white people or anything like that. He said there's just a blowback against those rights. At which point Tucker Carlson then said, that's proof that there's racism in America because they believe that there's blowback against advances made in civil rights. How do you see the history of slavery within that kind of rationalization and logic that a black person, a black congressman could be declared a racist for talking about the actual history of black history here in the United States. Hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a very complicated question. Um, uh, but I think again, uh, I think it, again, it comes down to issues to do with the way, I mean, you mentioned civil rights as being kind of an important part of that accusation. And I think there's something about the way, um, civil rights or the idea that we're all free and equal individuals 
Um, and the way uh, both slavery itself, but in particular the abolition of slavery, um, and you could say the same thing about decolonization, was a, a liberation that involved um, a transformation into a particular kind of, you know, uh, uh, identity, you could say, a particular kind of subjectivity, uh, this free and equal idea. That there's something about that that makes it possible to to make those kind of crazy accusations, right? Because um, because on the one hand, the legacy of colonialism and slavery and settler colonialism me leaves these incredibly deep scars, right? That that mean that. Um, uh, uh, like wealth and all resources of all kinds are uh, distributed along really, really racialized lines. But on the other hand, it becomes really difficult to grab hold of that in a context in which um, uh, everyone is is kind of forced to narrate themselves as absolutely free and equal. So essentially, it's a distinction between a, the formal equality that's invoked by civil rights on the one hand and the material inequality that's invoked by, that that is produced by. Uh, civil rights and produced by um, by by uh, by by an economic system essentially that's oriented around um, the level playing field. And you, question, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you did, uh, and I I just came up with that question because I was <laughs> I saw that on TV last night. It angered me so much I couldn't keep it inside anymore. Uh, so you write in a that in a televised address, so President Elect Joe Biden described himself as shocked and saddened to see that our nation, so long the beacon of light and hope of democracy, has come to such a dark moment when it came to the U.S. Capitol siege, and condemned the assault of the Citadel of Liberty perpetrated by what he described as a lawless mob of extremists who do not represent who we are. Considering that this follows a summer that's uh, armed anti-lockdown protesters at state capitals around the country, and especially the armed crowd that filled the visitors gallery at the Michigan State Capitol and attempted to verbally and physically intimidate uh, legislators who were voting on lockdown measures, uh, lawmakers concerned so much for their own safety that they were wearing bulletproof vests as they voted. How much of a surprise should the events of January 6th have been? Well, I mean, yeah, evidently it was coming, right? Evidently, evidently, um, you know, and is it really interesting that nobody sought to to cover it up? Um, So there was this, there's this, one of the clips that was circulating um, around uh, after the kind of storming of the Citadel of Liberty was this, which I kind of quoted as was this, poor woman like being all upset because she'd been maced and just hadn't hadn't been expecting it obviously at all even though she was clearly going to break in uh, and do something that's really really obviously illegal and unconstitutional and all the rest of it it seems like you know somehow or other everybody had got the impression that what they were doing was fine and and I suppose you could probably trace that back I mean you asked me a second ago about the particular Americanness of it and I it seems to me that it must have something to do with the way, the founding of the United States, right? And the Declaration of Independence and the idea that you could, that there's always a right to overturn um, a government um, if you think it's, if it's verging on the tyrannical, right? So there is this specifically United Statesian element to it, I guess. Um, in that case, of course, it was the British Empire. But, you know, this time, evidently, it was the... <laughs> The Democrats, I mean, and, and again, there's this there's this whole, um, I mean, the, the subtext of the whole thing seems to be a, a kind of anti-socialist thing as well, right? Because it's not just that the election was understood to be, or believed to be fraudulent on no evidence, but also that, that this, from what you can see of the slogans and the flags, you know, all the don't tread on me snake flags and the give me liberty or give me death flags and all of that. The subtext to it seems to be that even if, regardless of the actual election itself, if the Democrats got in and put in place some redistributive measures, that itself would be unlawful, according to a a kind of essentialist reading of the American Constitution. You also quote, that's amazing. You also quote former President George W. Bush saying this is how election results are disputed in a banana republic. Not our democratic republic. Now, there's been a lot of criticism of using that term, banana republic, when it comes to what took place on January 6th. Laura Weiss, who's the former managing editor at the North American Congress in Latin America, wrote at the New Republic this week about using banana republic by saying it is less useful to draw attention to the ways the U.S. is unlike 
third world countries than it is to understand regional and global trends toward right-wing extremism. And she quoted Kenyan, the Kenyan satirist Patrick Gathara writing in The Guardian, it may, have more, it may have more stuff and bigger guns, but at heart the West is simply a richer version of the rest. To what extent did the events of January 6th reveal that the U.S. is just as vulnerable to this kind of uprising as any country, that the U.S. is far less unique, far less stable than those here in the United States may believe it is? Does it, as anthropologist Ida Susser said on our show last week, does the U.S. embrace a, a stability myth? Hmm. Yeah, I think there's, that's definitely it does. And there's kind of two parts to that as well. So on the one hand, with the banana republics, the, the issue is, you know, it's not, it's, it, 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 it isn't just sort of like an accident that, you know, the, and that's kind of a relatively specific reference to um, the Latin American states of the, you know, the 80s in particular. You know, they weren't unstable just because they were uh, uh, neither American nor European. They were unstable because the CIA, which in answer to your question this week, the CIA was busy, you know, like orchestrating coups and undermining democracy specifically in the so-called banana republics in the name of freedom, right? That's what it was doing. And so, you know, the, the, the US is completely bound up with the banana republicness of the so-called banana republic. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that as a result of all of that interventionism, both in the Cold War and then through structural adjustment afterwards, kind of indirectly through the IMF and the World Bank, and then, uh, uh, well, that's all still going on. And then lots of interventionism, more military again, um, under, you know, Democrats and Republicans, you know, all over the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and so on. Like all of these transformations of the world into essentially like a version of the United States, um, you had William Robinson on the other day, I think, and he, his book, although it's old now, promoting polyarchy is all about. It's brilliant, all about that. Um, you know, that has all, what that's done is transform the world into this kind of giant, you know, fully integrated globalized economy. Um, interestingly enough, the upwards redistribution channels are now so intense that even, you know, European and North American states are are themselves like like so unequal that the level of suffering at the bottom of the pile is just so intense right that i think that also is another reason why it makes this eventually inevitable because um inequality you know inequality um or i guess poverty and desperation um undermine necessarily undermine the stability of any government right and the government needs to find some resources because that's 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 how it fulfills freedom that's what freedom's all about as you were saying at the beginning so yeah so exactly the us is just as vulnerable now um partly well or you know i would say maybe 90 percent because of its own actions elsewhere in the world you also point out that there is more to these condemnations than the unabashed exceptionalism, hypocrisy, and ignorance which underpin them. This mainstream reaction is notable also for the consistency with which it positions this attempted fascist coup as an external assault on the normal functioning of democracy and the rule of law. As former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton put it, for example, today domestic terrorists attacked the foundation of our democracy, the peaceful transfer of power following free elections. We must reestablish the rule of law and hold them accountable. How do you believe the events of January 6th are viewed when we understand them as external threats outside of the United States democracy, what do we miss in our understanding of what happened when we think of the attack or siege or whatever you want to call it as an outsider threat and not a threat within our own democracy? Um, well, what we, yeah, what we miss is, is the extent to which, um, first of all, the, the, um, the normal functioning of democracy and the rule of law, or, you know, to quote Clinton again, the rule of law, accountability, free elections, and so on, uh, actually cr creates the conditions which cause people to, which eventually lead to um, uh, uh, fascism, to put it bluntly. Um, and then we also miss the extent to which um, that happens elsewhere, right? So, you know, you, Hillary Clinton made this speech, which I'm quite obsessed with, just before um, uh, she tried, she was persuading the Human Rights Council to intervene in 
in Libya in early 2011. And she said almost exactly the same thing, right? That, you know, that Gaddafi was, um, uh, I was, you know, had like moved beyond the rule of law and democracy and that, you know, everyone had a duty to uh, reestablish democracy and, and the peaceful transfer of power and so on. And then what did that do? That authorized a massive unleashing of huge amounts of force and violence in, in Libya. So, so, but but it was all couched in terms of exactly the same language. So I think what's happening here is that Trump and Trump supporters are quite a useful kind of scapegoat, right? So when things go wrong, um, uh, it's easy to say, oh, look, look at those fascists over there. Look at those nutcases. You know, they're lawless, they're rioting. You know, what we need to do is establish democracy and the rule of law. Um, they, so they need to be there, basically. They need to be there in order to help the 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 rule of law legitimate itself. But what that legitimation is doing is just facilitating this massive amounts of violence elsewhere. Wow, that is just amazing. And now you know why we're we have Rose on the show today. Legal scholar Rose Parfit wrote the article "Mob Constitutionalism: The Riot in the Rights," which was posted at the Critical Legal Thinking website. You can follow Rose on Twitter at Rose underscore Parfit underscore, and find out more about Rose's work at Fascism and the International dot com. You write how those who engaged in the U.S. Capitol protest and the siege of the Capitol convinced that, were convinced that the election had been rigged. They, the, they were equally insistent that in doing so, they were acting to defend democracy and protect the honesty of our elections and to the integrity of our glorious republic from being stolen by radical left Democrats and the fake news media, as Trump had put it when addressing them moments earlier. You write how it, the way that it's being framed right now is law, democracy, and good on the one hand, and violence, fascism, and evil on the other. Yet neither side sees themselves as evil, and both feel they're fighting for democracy. What does either side miss in their understanding of each other when they do not understand that their counterparts also believe they're truly doing their very best to uphold the law and defend democracy? Well, one of the things that I think they're really missing, or one of the things that framing this as a as a um, who's right, basically, which one's got a better interpretation of the constitution, or is one of them completely illegitimate or not, and is that it completely crowds out another possibility, which is that we, that perhaps the whole thing is flawed, right? And also that there actually are alternatives. Now, when I say alternatives, I don't mean like some somebody like somewhere in Brussels has come up with another way of articulating representative democracy. What I mean is that there are that the whole world once upon a time was covered in different kinds of polities with different ways of organizing themselves and different ways of organizing their relationship with other polities. And um, now now that's called indigenous law, right? But that has only become that because of the all that process of um, colonization and decolonization. And basically, that this the the self fulfilling prophecy that um, was you know Hegel talking about the universal state and the the, the whole system of the um, this uh, the state the constitutional state and the rule of law that isn't the only way of of doing law right there are many many others even now after you know five centuries of colonialism and five centuries of trying to eliminate them so by focusing on this question of like you know, was it them or, you know, but although that there's not much of a debate there, it's, it's quite clear uh, uh, who, who's supposed to be wrong and who's supposed to be right, but th which completely detracts attention from the point that the whole thing is, 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 is the problem, right? The whole system is the problem and it's, it's not inevitable. There's nothing inevitable about the fact that we all live in states and that we all, we all are governed by some kind of constitution now. That was, that was, there was a huge amount of violence and a huge amount of planning put, put in place for that. You cite the 20th century Martinique poet and politician M.A. Césaire writing that when that boomerang effect is felt, when it, the actions that we've taken overseas are then taken back here within the United States, when that is felt, people are surprised. They become indignant. They say, how strange, but never mind. It's Nazism. It will pass. And they wait and they hope and they hide the truth from themselves, the th truth that they cultivated that Nazism, that they are responsible 
responsible for it, and that before engulfing the whole edifice of Western Christian civilization in its reddened waters, it oozes, seeps, and trickles from every crack. Again, this is not something Emmy Césaire wrote last week. It's from Discourse on Colonialism, which was published in the mid-1960s. What is it about Western civilization that cultivates Nazism? I want to make sure that people understand your argument. So I think actually, I think it's even earlier. I think he wrote it in 1950. Yeah, so it's super early. It's right, just right after the end of the Second World War. And what he's, well, what Cesar is arguing there is that essentially, I mean, I can can read a bit more of the quote, which might be useful. He's he's saying that um, they um, essentially... The, the, before, um, well, let me see later. No, I get, but essentially, they're saying he's saying that colonialism, that as a system, uh, sort of um, uh, a gangrene sets in. He says among the actual people who invented colonialism, right? So they that it it destroys them. He says that colonialism works to decivilize the colonizer and brutalize the the colonizer, uh, and awaken awaken buried instincts to covetousness, covetousness and violence. Essentially, it kind of hardens them to the kind of violence that that essentially fascism then brought home to Europe. So so he, he says that colonialism made Nazism, he's speaking specifically about Nazism, but I think you could broaden it out to fascism more generally, made it possible because it kind of brutalized the the Europeans and then uh, and then bit by bit it became sort of thinkable to to th- to think of people in Europe, or most obviously the Jews, but not only the Jews, in the same way that um, they've been thinking about, you know, indigenous people, African peoples, and peoples they found in the so-called New World. That that's the basic, that's the basic argument that he's making. But you can also you can also broaden that out, kind of historically. I mean, it's well known that the Nazis, uh, um, you know experiments on on prisoners of war and so on that that kind of experimentation had been uh um had been going on for ages in in like uh parts of the german empire it's well known that the um the final solution had its roots in the massacre the genocide of the herero in southwest africa was now namibia so there's there's really you know this is not just amy cesar being hyperbolic and brilliant this is this is fact kind of thing. Yeah. And you also see the roots of all these problems within European law. How does European law influence the situation on the ground and at the U.S. Capitol? How does it how does European law affect the way in which people have reacted to the election of Joe Biden? Um, so so European law, essentially, I mean, in a nutshell, uh, my take on it is that is that it it, crea- it creates a kind of um, a world in which uh, um, the logic is that of the struggle for the survival of the fittest, inevitably. Um, so European law, um, by orienting itself around a free and equal individuals, basically, um, who are then kind of project that free and equal individuality onto usually onto the sovereign state, although maybe that is the one thing that's changing now. Um, that that inevitably sets up a kind of dynamic in which uh, the realization of of subjectivity, what it means to be self-determining and free, is to is to is to have wants and needs that are then satisfied. That's otherwise that would be unfreedom, right? So, uh, and the state is charged with doing that. And if you think about the way representative democracy works, you know, the state has a duty to the, to its population. If they want something or they need something, the state is charged then with going out to get it. Um, and that's all fine until until the resources run out. And now we're living in an era where the resources really have run out. So, um, so, so there's this kind of violence implicit there's an expansionism and a violence implicit in um in that in that system in that european legal system in the constitution of the united states but in every constitution on uh, like organized along those lines which means pretty much every every constitution um so that's the that's the issue that there, there is this violence and that violence bursts out at, at moments where where the struggle for survival becomes very acute 
um, as I, I think arguably it is now. I mean, I, I would love to know, and I don't know how, like what the political economy of this coup, of this attempted coup or this attempted insurrection or this break-in or whatever you want to call it is. Um, I don't know enough about, about the people who were involved, but my suspicion is that that might have something to do with that. I don't think in general they're terribly well off. So I don't know. You'll know more about this than me. Are the, are the capital protests then against the system's inability to get the people the stuff they want? Um, I think not exactly. I think it's a protest against um, against uh, the the system redistributing uh, stuff that rightfully belongs to those who believe themselves to be free, um, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah. So I think it's 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 so the the kind of one would think that when that poverty would suggest to people that that um, there needs to be more sharing or something like that, but that just doesn't seem to seem to be how it usually works. Often, uh, poverty and destruction seems to lead people to blame their neighbours. Right, that happens all over the world. That's not, obviously not just in the states, but that seems to be the logic. And I think that the way law is set up that has something to do with it um, because because of the way in which um, when uh, um, essentially when the state comes along and does things like taxing and redistributing and um, generally uh, um, uh, reorganizing things that that can be portrayed and is portrayed and particularly was portrayed on the 6th of January as a theft as um, as tyranny that should be rebelled against so I think that all of that is getting muddled up. That that that's my that's my suspicion. There is an article at the front page of the New York Times today about uh, profiling some of the people who were involved in the protests, and many of them are saying that they were there to actually apply citizens' arrests to lawmakers who they felt were stealing the election, who they felt were violating democracy. But where do they get the, I understand them having this idea that they are doing something that is lawful, that they feel like they're upholding the law, that they feel like they're the ones who are defending democracy. But where do they get the idea that they can take the law into their own hands? Um, I think they get that just from the promise of the law rather than the actual fact of the law. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the kind of the thing that's repeated over and over and over again by Republicans, by Democrats, by everybody, but also by fascists and by communists and socialists and everybody pretty much tied up with this system is that um, is that it, it's there to to vindicate freedom, the freedom of individuals, the natural rights of human beings to be free. Um, I guess in the United States, States context, because of that, that uh, people are, if it's not too strong a way to put it, really obsessed with the Constitution in a way that people are not here. I mean, we don't also don't have a Constitution, or we have this thing that's called an unwritten Constitution, which is, of course, ridiculous. But so there's nothing to obsess over in the UK, but people don't obsess over public law in quite that way. But there is a the Constitution is super important, it seems to me anyway, for, again, from the outside in the US. But there is this kind of inbuilt thing about throwing off tyranny because of the founding of the US as a kind of breakaway colony from 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 the British uh, Empire. So I, I think there's so I think the promise of the law, the promise of, of freedom that is clearly not being delivered, combined with this kind of um, often repeated um, uh, like it's not exactly well it's kind of a myth about the way in which the British Empire was thrown off and what that means in terms of rights combined I mean like so this guy um I put a little bit about this in the piece but this guy the guy with the horns was his name Jake something um and his uh his sort of like faux um like indigenous you know war paint and so on like that 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 I don't know if I'm right, but it, that seems to be a pretty direct invocation of what the Tea Party guys were doing in whenever it was 1773. They, according to what I know about the history, dressed up as um, what 
what, what, what they then called Indians, right? And then basically destroyed a bunch of property of the British Empire. And that's that's held up as a kind of excellent moment in the history of the United States. So there seems to be a kind of genealogy of um, uh, like appropriating indigenous identities and originalism tied up with violence, tied up with this being the vindication of individual freedom. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating point that you made. Can the mob be understood without a willingness to accept the history of lawlessness by the U.S. government throughout U.S. history, the complete disregard for the rule of law that brought about what many believe are the qualities that make the United States the greatest country, greatest superpower to ever exist? Can we understand the mob if we believe that U.S. history has adhered to the rule of law? So the, so you're suge- the, the question is that if we if so in your question the, the, the is the u.s a lawless state or is it's one who it is a lawless it's a, my so my question is what you know can we understand the mob if we do not understand the u.s history of lawlessness hmm so i i wouldn't put it like that sorry that's why i wanted to check because actually the what looks like lawlessness on the part of the united states is actually in many ways lawful Right. I mean, the the CIA coups and so on, less so. But most of the most of the um, super violent acts have have been, you know, relatively plausibly um, measures of law enforcement. If you understand, um, uh, uh, like in in the sense of defending um, property rights and so on. So I, w- I actually wouldn't see the U.S. as a necessarily a lawless. Um, power because in a way it's sort of the embodiment of um, well actually let me explain what I mean a bit better so um, I I began at the beginning by talking about how fascism is often positioned as the opposite of law of the rule of law Um, and and the the way I got to this was was um, through research on the history of international law and it struck me at a certain point for various reasons mainly because I was looking at Ethiopia um, which um, which, as as you probably know, was um, kind of annexed in the 1930s by uh, Mussolini's Italy. And I, I realized that there was this massive gap in the history of international law where fascism should be. There was literally nothing about fascism and international law other than to say that, that fascism, the fascist states in the 30s, completely violated every rule of international law. But and I thought, this is really weird. So for years and years, I've been like, digging around in the archives in Rome and stuff like that. And the fact of the matter is, as I suspected, that there was tons and tons of fascist international law. There were loads of fascist scholars of international law and so on. So it's just not the case that um, fascism and international law are opposites, however much we might like to believe it, with international law being all about human rights and so on. So so that's the beginning of it. So what do these guys say? Well, they have, as you might imagine, a fascist take on law. And uh, that fascist take on law is much more hierarchical than um, the, the, the kind of more normal rule of law, i.e. liberal take on it. And essentially the state becomes this kind of um, um, kind of super subject that's kind of able to walk, walk a line somehow between um, violence and law um, uh, on behalf of the, of the masses. So when I say that the I wouldn't position the U.S. as lawless. I would say that it it's a very its understanding of um, international law and law is a very fascist understanding. So, <laughs> yeah, I, no, that that totally that makes a lot more sense. Uh, that European law has those tendencies as well. Uh, that's really fascinating. I've got one last question for you, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I can't believe that we were—I wasn't aware of your work until uh, a few weeks ago because this really is amazing work. We've been speaking with legal scholar Rose Parfit, who wrote the article "Mob Constitutionalism: The Riot and the Rights," which was posted at the Critical Legal Thinking website. Rose is a senior lecturer at Kent Law School. She is the author of the 2019 work, The Process of International Legal Production, Inequality, Historiography, Resistance, among other works on the relationship between international law and fascism and the far right. You can follow Rose on Twitter at Rose underscore Parfit underscore, that's with two Ts, and you can find out more about Rose's work at Fascism 
and theinternational.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the point is not only that fetishizing the procedural helps to legitimize the substantive continuity of white supremacism, dispossession, and violent discrimination, rendering it uncontroversial, if not completely invisible. The point is also that in the context of a legal system that elevates individual liberty to the point at which even the encouragement of mid-pandemic mask wearing, let alone taxation, become instances of tyranny to which death is preferable, quite literally on the part of at least four protesters, democracy will inevitably resurface as fascism at a certain point. When I was reading that part of your writing yesterday, I just coincidentally saw an image of a protester holding up a sign that said, uh, freedom over safety. So definitely thinking about the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which death is preferable kind of thought. So following the certification of the Electoral College votes and Joe Biden as the next president of the United States, many commentators and politicians were saying that this proves in the face of the violence that democracy in the United States not only works, but it's resilient. To you, how resilient does U.S. democracy appear to be following the events of June or January 6th? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I, I think that U.S. democracy, as far as it goes, being not very democratic, um, is very resilient, and in particular, the kind of um, the kind the the economic flip side to it, it seems to be extraordinarily resilient as well. So, um, so that um, you know, the the many of the, there's a whole load of continuities, unfortunately, between you know Biden and Trump. There are many that we could name. So the change is not enormously huge, but. Uh, so you know that itself is kind of testimony to the. I think I think I would agree with the people that you were quoting. But yeah, I mean, the, the there seems to be no. There's absolutely no sense in which um, the idea that um, uh, that uh, states have a duty to expand, if not territorially anymore, then certainly in other kinds of ways, uh, by carving out property rights where there were none before. Um, and by ensuring that they, I mean, for example, stockpiling the vaccines now, uh, when even in the context in which it, it doesn't make any sense from a kind of um, epidemiological point of view, uh, there's there's no sense in which that is being challenged at all. I, I was just learning just now uh, that Biden was one of the architects of Plan Colombia, for example, which I didn't know before. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's tough as nails. <laughs> Yeah, very much so. And if people do not know uh, about Biden's uh, involvement with Plan Columbia, you should definitely look that up because that is a frightening aspect of what's going to be happening with foreign policy under the Biden administration. Rose, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. You can follow Rose on Twitter at Rose underscore Parfit underscore and find out more about Rose's work at Fascism and the International. Don't forget her 2019 book is The Process of International Legal Production Reproduction, Inequality, Historiography, Resistance. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast livestream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this or today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from Hell is, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show, Thursday's show, when we're announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Tomorrow, well, during the moment of truth, really not sure what Jeff's going to be doing because Jeff's waiting to see what happens during the inauguration today. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Yes, John T. says, in answer to what has the CIA been up to, 
Joy Division covers. <laughs> Aaron D says winning the Euchre tournament against the FBI's domestic terror division while waiting for an adult to be put in charge. <laughs> so I assume that that's now, really, somebody from I, Michigan. I think the uh, the CIA and the FBI would play mousetrap <laughs> or maybe Candyland. Candyland, maybe. <laughs> you know, as a somebody who's completely colorblind, I lost Candyland to my brothers and sister. Every time I played, and it took me till I was like six or seven to realize, hey, they're cheating. <laughs> Oops. Andrew S. says, doing a little domestic gladio as a treat. <laughs> Sweet. Christine M. says, writing QAnon drops and doodling on MS Paint. <laughs> okay. Chris S. says, nice try, copper. <laughs> And Jeffrey, our Jeffrey says, playing the ponies. <laughs> Getting a little of the eye action down by the rail. Yeah. So what is, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? Adam K says, encouraging people to visit the Capitol. <laughs> Martin F says, they've been trying to figure out who killed Dr. King and JFK. <laughs> Working on that. Lisa P. says, what they always are doing, proving our man in Havana is a documentary. <laughs> nice Graham Greene reference. Egon S. says, I believe his name is Biden. <laughs> and Aaron D. says, scoping Pinterest for terrorists and fun bathroom ideas. <laughs> this online vigilantism uh, by liberals who are trying to track down the people who were involved in the January 6th siege is really freaking creepy. <laughs> and last, our last answer today is uh, from Bradley A. We've been keeping an eye on you, Chuck. Yes, <laughs> some of us at the CIA listen to... This is how we got some satisfaction from your bitterness and enjoyed the flirty exchanges between you, yourself, and Jeffrey. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers. We'll have more of your responses to this week's question from hell following our guest tomorrow, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, actually. Uh, we're still looking for volunteer board operators who can show up regularly one, two, three more times a month uh, every week here on This Is Hell for our daily 10 a.m. show here at Carrie's Lounge, above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. But as we are in the middle of another wave or surge or whatever you want to call this of the pandemic. It, it's really kind of difficult to train people at this time to be doing work here in the studio because the control room is not that big. You can maybe get three people in there, but two, it's already kind of uncomfortable. So if you are interested in being a board operator, we'll, please send us an email at chuck at thisishell.com and we'll put you on the list. But we're not going to be able to train you in person until maybe a month maybe a couple months from now. We don't really know right now. But there is a lot of remote work that we're looking to have done because we're trying to rebuild our archives and make it so each and every one of the shows that we have ever done are free and accessible to the public and can. we'll have a really great search engine so you can find whatever topic or whatever person that you're looking for. So we'll be getting in contact with you very soon about doing that remote work. And if you are interested in doing that remote work, all you have to do is Email us again at chuck at thisishell.com. And we've got some people already telling us that they want to help us out in that way. We have a ton of them, actually, over the last several months. But in the last week, Chase wrote us about joining the crew saying, Hi, Chuck. I'm a big fan of This Is Hell. I've been listening for a couple years, and I love the show. Thanks to you and the entire crew for all the work you all put into making the show. It makes navigating hell a little bit easier. In the past few months, I've heard you mention that there is some work available. I live in Santa Cruz, California, and I'd love to help out with any of the available remote work, assuming it's still there. Let me know. I look forward to hearing back from you. Sincerely, Chase. And we also heard from Shannon, who writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, I've only come to find your podcast in the last year or so, but it's become something I really rely on for the in-depth in interviews that you have with leading scholars and public intellectuals. I couldn't find on the website a list of tasks you're looking to help with, but would like to find out if there is any way I can help out with the show. I'm not in the Chicago area. In fact, I'm an expat living in Japan. If the time difference doesn't disqualify me, please let me know what type or types of help you need. I have experience editing and rudimentary knowledge of HTML and CSS. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Shannon in Tokyo. 
Alex will be contacting everybody who has told us they're interested in contributing to the show by helping us either produce the show or with our other remote work, including rebuilding our archives and website. If you would like to become part of the crew here on This Is Hell, email us and we'll tell you exactly what you can do to help us out. Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Yes, Robert Kavoris on his article, We Need a Popular Anti-Fascist Movement from the Partisan Magazine. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin is, well, waiting to see what happens <laughs> during the inauguration. As we all are. Thanks to everybody who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find out all the ways you can con- contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise. Remember, without you, we've got nothing. We want to thank William for your support overnight. Thanks, William. It's truly appreciated. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me and a classic archived interview that cannot be found anywhere else online. We do one of those every Friday at 10 a.m. live and then this podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can subscribe to our podcast on Fridays. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to... Rose Parfit for being our guest today. Again, you can find Rose on Twitter at Rose underscore Parfit underscore and find out more about Rose's work at fascismandtheinternational.com. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing today's show. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest with my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor and very proud of it. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>